0: You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Why don't you grab your Bible? We're continuing in our series through Hebrews. And today we're starting Hebrews chapter 3. And so I invite you to uh, go to Hebrews chapter 3 with me. Let's ready our, our hearts to hear God's word. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of resting in the wilderness, day of testing in the wilderness, where your father's put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is God's word. Well, as a as an eighties and and nineties kid, you know, growing up, there was one goat, right? You know, that's that stands for the greatest of all time. And there really wasn't any competition. There wasn't much discussion. It was always Michael Jordan. Uh, right, yes, yeah, some head nods from my 80s and 90s kids. No, no player was able to do what, what Michael Jordan was able to do. Led his team to six championships, a five time uh, MVP, uh, only player to average above two um, steals every single game. Um, still leads the NBA in um, postseason points. I mean, LeBron's not even top five. And, uh, you know, and, and the highest average points per game for career NBA player ever. And so you can imagine 15 years ago or so when people start talking about this young kid from Akron, Ohio as the chosen one. The chosen one, right? Of course, I'm talking about LeBron James. I have no patience for this kind of heresy, by the way. He comes along and they're like, this is it. He's the replacement. He's replacing Mount Jordan. They watch his stats closely. They watch him, and uh, of course, the debate continues. For some, the debate is over, but the debate continues more or less. And, and this isn't isolated just to sports. There are many who come along the scene in different professions and, uh, and arenas to uh, to seek to be the better one. And there's competition and there's discussion. Uh, I've heard these kind of conversations with like uh, you know late night hosts. You got. Johnny Carson, you have David Letterman, or is it Jimmy Fallon, or actors like John Wayne and uh, Sean Connery, Meryl Streep, or Denzel Washington. (laughs) Well, this conversation continues, and it's even found here in our scripture. Who's the greatest? The greatest influence on God's people, the greatest one, the greatest in all of God's people. It happens within the pages of scripture. The author of Hebrews compares the greatness of Christ here once again with the greatness of of another figure within the redemption history, Moses. And it wasn't that Moses was was deified or worshiped by God's people, but Moses was clearly this human savior that would come along and to, to do one of the the most earthly glorious things that had been done in in all of redemption history, rescue God's people from slavery in Egypt and deliver the law of God. The law of God would become everything for the people of God. The law of God was everything for God's people. Delivered through Moses. Moses was the redeemer of God's people from slavery. Moses was the goat. He was the greatest of all time and the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. If you remember, we covered something like this a few weeks ago as the writer of Hebrews is comparing the greatness of Christ to the greatness of angels and the influence that angels have had on the people of God. And like I imagined in that passage, um, not too many people struggle with trying to figure out who's going to influence me more, angels or Jesus? And maybe like this topic, you might feel similarly. I don't know if there's any temptation for you to prioritize Moses in your life more than Jesus. But this is where we want to ask ourselves this important question. What role did Moses play for the people of God? And how are we prone to prioritize this kind of influence over the influence of Jesus? And if we look at it like that, I think we can see some relevant relevant uh, word for us today. For the angels, we may be prone to be too impressed with the glory of created things over the glory of God, and far too over-impressed with earthly things and worldly things. And with Moses, the theological warning may be this, we must be mindful to not place a greater priority on a commitment to theological information over spiritual transformation and the influence of people who spiritually lead and serve us over the one who gives that word and transforms our heart. Now, to be sure, critical, there's a critical relationship between right theological information and heart transformation. We can't, we can't be Christians. We cannot be a Christian without believing true things. But here's where the danger exists for many of us. Moses and any other great servant of God can impart information for how to live, can lead us in a certain way, but only God through Christ can bring about real heart and soul transformation. And that is why within this comparison is a strong warning, the second really strong warning in this letter. Don't miss this. Don't take your eyes off this. Don't lose this because if you do, you forfeit the only hope that you have. And so there's careful warning for us. It's possible to miss out on the transformation of our hearts because we're more concerned and focused on listening to information from others rather than information from God. That's the warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. To harden one's heart is to choose to listen to human voices, human wisdom, rather than listening to the voice of God who alone can transform a heart. So what's, what's the objective of this passage? What's the call to action? What's, what is this wanting us to do? And it's right here in verse one, in, in the middle of the verse. My translation says, consider Jesus. Uh, maybe your translation says something like, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Uh, other translations might say, think carefully, about Jesus. So what, what the English translation is trying to do, uh, it's trying to take this Greek understanding and get across this idea that the antidote to fight back against the disease of hard-heartedness heart-heartedness, of closing our ears to the voice of God is this, to contemplate so deeply with our mind the good news of Christ until our motivations are Our affections, our desires, and our actions are transformed. This is the objective of this call and in this warning is to fix our mind so deeply, not just to think on Christ, not to think intellectually, but to dwell so deeply that everything in us is changed. Everything in our life comes in line with the word and truth and purposes of God. I'm sure you know of Isaac Newton's influence on our lives. Yeah, I'm, cover, I'm covering all the great goats today, right? So we got Michael Jordan, we got LeBron, we've got Isaac Newton. I mean, his discoveries in some of the most complex areas of intellect that have ever been known change and radically have changed how we live our lives. His discoveries ex- explain how airplanes stay in the air, his discoveries explain why we enjoy. Roller coasters, and some, some, and, and why some of us throw up on them, <laughs> All, you know of, of motion and mathematics and physics and 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 even theology. And people asked him when he was interviewed. They asked him, "How do you, how do you know this stuff? How do you, how can you focus on this stuff? It's so complicated. No one can understand. No one can comprehend. And you have been able to discover uh, things in this world that are so complicated." the most complicated of all things. And he said, the, un, the, the key to understanding difficult things is to always keep that thing before you all the time. Not just to think on it, not just to consider it in the sense that we might think about that, but to keep this thing before you all the time until you get it, until it changes you, until you understand, until God brings understanding to your heart to meditate, to fixate, to consider it always. And there's nothing and no one more worthy of this kind of fixed consideration than Jesus because Jesus is greater than all things and all people that have ever lived. He's greater than all things and all people from all times. And so if we are going to fixate on anything, if we are going to consider anything and keep something before us all the time, There is no greater and more worthy thing and person than Christ. And our passage defends this claim once again by calling our attention to three areas of Christ's superiority over Moses. Moses can impart information, but only Christ can bring about real heart transformation. And here's why. We'll develop them one at a time as we go through. Here's the first first defense, only Christ can transform our, our identity. This is laid out in verse one, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So there are two privileges that the author draws our attention to about the identity of Christ. There are our identity in Christ that gives us, that he gives us, that the world cannot give us, that Moses can't give us, that no great intellect, that no doctrine can give us. There's something that only Christ can give us. And here, the first thing is that we are called holy, holy brothers. And here it can be understood as holy brothers, holy sisters. And the second is that we have this heavenly calling. They're addressed as holy brothers. The word the author uses is holy this is how he's describing his audience. And I think about this. This is pretty radical. Radical. It's actually quite curious. Um, to be holy is to be considered pure, to be considered blameless, consecrated, noble, set apart, saintly. And here he is writing to this, these people that are, are known sinners. They struggle. They wrestle in the world. They are conflicted. They're prone to kind of be fickle and to abandon God. They are struggling in their faith and he calls them holy. This is the word he uses to describe them. This is the word he's using to describe Christians who continue in sin, yet have their identity in Christ. Doesn't the author know who he's talking to? Maybe you feel that this would be a a bit strange if someone addressed you as saintly or holy or would you be prone to say this is that's weird like I'm don't call me that I'm 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 a sinner. And to be sure like we can conti- we are sinners. But this identity that has been imparted to us because of our adoption into the family of God into Christ. We can receive this greeting with such great confidence as if it was written to us, holy brothers, holy sisters. This is your identity in Christ it reflects the way that God looks at his people. The way that God is talking to you. Holy, consecrated, set apart, pure, blameless, noble, set apart for my purposes. The way that God addresses you as you trust in him and have faith in him, as you are adopted into the family of God, he addresses you as holy ones. Not because you're perfect, Not because you've stopped sinning, not because you have it all together, but because of the transformation that only Christ can give to the very identity to all who believe in him. Only Jesus can do that. No bit of information can change that. No, nothing can change our identity and transform our identity. But this, there's something different about the person who has the spirit of God in them. They're called saints. They're called holy, not because they've arrived, not because that we are perfect, but by the virtue of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross and God's adoption of us as his children, we have been set apart, given a new identity. No longer are we defined by the judgment according to our deeds, but destined to the fullness of God's affection and love according to his mercy. That's your designation. That's your identity. That is your future and your call. Do you see yourself the way God sees yourself? Sees you? (laughs) Do you see yourself in that way? This is the privilege of the second calling. He says, "You you have a heavenly calling. You are holy with a heavenly calling. The designation as God's holy ones doesn't come by way of determination, but who you are and and the, the, the way that God sees you, it's not because of something that came from within you, but it came from heaven. It's a calling outside of us, from outside of us, from God to us, designating us for a destiny and a future that we did not deserve, but has been given by grace we belong to Jesus and nothing can get in the way of that. Do you see yourself in that way? Do you see yourself as God sees you? These are the privileges of this new identity and only Jesus can do that. The author of Hebrews is wanting to compel us to realize you can be smart. You can know all the truth of the doctrines of scripture. You can do good things, but there is one thing that none of, that can accomplish, none of those things can accomplish None of, you can, none of those things can give you that calling, can transform your heart, can change your identity like Christ. Let's, let's think a little bit about how identities are formed a little bit. You know, why do you think of yourself the way that you do think of yourself? So I asked you, do you think of yourself the way God thinks of you, he calls you holy, set apart with a heavenly calling, secure in his love and his mercy? That's how he looks at you because of Jesus. Not all of us think of ourselves as that way. Why is that? the development of the human personality has been a, a, a topic of, of great um, study for a very long time. The, the human ego strength, right? We're talking, about, we're talking about human personality and the human ego strength. We're talking about one's ability to adapt to, to negative and difficult circumstances in our life. This can be when you sin, how do you feel? When something bad happens to you, how do you react? When someone betrays you, maligns you, when somebody hurts you, when somebody is disloyal to you, how do you feel and react? What goes on inside of you? This is, we're talking about personality and, and ego. How do you feel when you lose a sense of, of control over your environment and when failure seems certain? This is personality. This is identity. The way that you and I respond to our sin and circumstances in our life reflects how we think of ourselves. How we feel and how we react to everything that happens to us is a direct result of our belief of who we think we are. Two people go into a job interview, neither of them get it. One person walks away and says, they're missing out, they passed up on something great, I'm gonna show them because I know that I'm better than that the other person says, I don't even know why I even went in there. I, I, I knew I wasn't going to get the job. Why would they hire me? I'm, an, I'm a failure. I'm an idiot. I'm a, uh, I'm never going to try out for anything else ever again. I'm just live on stimulus checks for the rest of my life. You know, or whatever. This is identity. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Think about it. You sin. You feel shame. You feel guilt. You feel worthless. You make promises that you know you can't keep. God, I won't do this again. I'll, I'll get better. When things fall apart around you, you feel confused and hopeless and out of control. All these reactions just reflect how you, how you view yourself. Now, how would, you, how would your reactions to your sins and the sins of others against you or your struggle because of life change and circumstances in your world that you have no control over, how would you react if constantly before you, you heard the voice of God saying, you are my holy one with a heavenly calling and that will never change. The words you start saying to yourself and the things you start speaking to yourself when you sin and when you fail or when others sin against you will be different. The way you speak and think of others when they hurt you will be different because God is always before you saying, you are my holy one with a heavenly calling set apart and held in my the grasp of my grace forever. You see, Identity, what shapes us, what things are shaping how we view ourselves. To be seen as holy and to share in a heavenly calling of being united to Christ is to influence and motivate us more than any other influence in the world. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can convince us that we have a right to think of ourselves in this way with great dignity, with great hope with great compassion, with great value, with great worth. Not because we have done something of great worth, but because God has loved us and that changes us. Only Christ can transform our identity from one that is insecure in this world to one that is secure in the grace of God. And that's where our author starts us. Let me tell you, he's greater than Moses. Well, let's start with this. No one can change who you are but Jesus. No one can change identity. No one can give you that security in this life because this life is broken, falling apart. It hurts. We're born into this world broken. We break ourselves through poor choices and sin. The world breaks us. We shape our identity and our personality by gathering things about what we believe about ourselves and our life. But then God tells us something different. You are holy You have a heavenly calling. You have a a great high priest who is over you and praying for you and interceding on your behalf. You have one that will never give up on you. And you have one that is sustaining you and ministering to you right now. And where's Moses? He's dead. (laughs) And that's why the author calls us to bring attention to the living God. Do you notice that? The living God who still is alive, whose spirit lives in us, that's one way that he's better than Moses. We have two more. I took a lot of time on the first one. We'll go through the next a couple quicker, okay? Oh my. Only Christ can bring completion, bring to completion our true purpose in life. You know, we're still, complete, we're still comparing Jesus to Moses, and this time uh, there's a metaphor of the house, right? The meaning of the house of God is, uh, is clear. It's, a, it's clear throughout scripture. It's a metaphor used throughout scripture to reference the people of God, um, the family of God and simply the house of God or the church, people in this room, the house of God, people in this room. And there are servants over this house. There are people who minister to, to the house of God, to the people of God. There are those who tend to the well being of the house, the health and well being and the nurturing of that house. Um, but Moses and Jesus served over this house in different ways. They're both called faithful, both of them were faithful over God's house but in different ways. Moses served the people of God by proclaiming God's word, by leading, by shepherding, by encouraging, by exhorting, by correcting, by warning. All of these things that a a pastor might do. Jesus served the house by building it it and living in it. (laughs) And by virtue of that, the builder is much more important than the house and the one who serves the house. Moses tends to the house, but Jesus builds the house. Here's where we see the difference in verse three. For Jesus... Has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. What does this mean? How can we think about this? Um, I remember visiting the Capitol building in in DC a handful of years ago. And here's a picture of the scaffolding around the Capitol Rotunda, right? Probably one of the most beautiful. Um, and magnificent pieces of architecture in, in the U.S. And, and it's really a, a sight to see, not only outside, but inside is just beautiful. And here they have this scaffolding that's wrapped around it. Uh, for a couple of years, the dome was um, not visible. It's, you know, it's covered in, in the scaffolding and this paper and, and all this stuff to protect it from the elements as it was being repaired and restored and, and all of that. Now imagine looking at this scaffolding and falling in love with the scaffolding. Imagine looking at, at the scaffolding or looking at, at this for the first time and thinking that's what it's supposed to look like. Not thinking that there's scaffolding, but thinking that, wow, it's not as, not as beautiful as everyone said it was. Taking pictures, showing all your friends, look at this, look at all that. you know, the cool, the metal around the top. It's like so, so neat. The purpose of the scaffolding is for it to one day come down. That's the purpose of it. The purpose is is for it to do its job and and then to come down. The point of all this talk about God's house is this. The purpose of scaffolding is to one day come down to reveal the beauty for which that scaffolding was in place in the first place. Moses spoke of the word of God, but Jesus is the word of God. Moses led God's people to a temporary land, and God leads us to a permanent land, a heavenly land, with permanent eternal life. Moses was present with God's people for a generation and then died. And Jesus is present with us in our spirit forever and always. Truth is important. Theology is important. Right living is important, but that is never the goal. The goal is never to just know right things or to be a good person. And the tragedy happens when we fall in love with right living over the giver of life himself. When we fall in love with knowing true things rather than the giver of truth. All of, the, all of that stuff that Moses said, all of that good stuff, the word of God is meant to lead us to the ultimate purpose for why it exists in the first place, for a deeper Communion with Jesus. Everything in all of creation is meant and everything that God has ever done and everything that has ever happened to you in your life is meant for one purpose and we can't realize it without Jesus. It's to lead you into a closer, more intimate, connected communion with a God who loves you. That is the purpose. To fall in love ultimately with anything else in this world is a great tragedy Everything that happens in your life has one ultimate aim, not to make you happy or wealthy or successful, but a deeper communion with Jesus. That's your ultimate purpose. Moses was faithful. This isn't about Moses doing a bad job or failing. In fact, he's actually, he's edified. He's he's affirmed he was faithful, but Jesus is better because Moses could not give this. Moses couldn't give us our ultimate purpose in life, but Jesus can. He goes on in our passage, and so will we. Only Christ can give us the courage to keep going. I was listening to uh, Elon Musk talk on a podcast, which I do like almost every day. I really like Elon Musk. I, he's, I think he's uh, fascinating to listen to and a very strange human being, but I just love that. And, and as many of you know, he has this big goal in life. What is, it's to, to colonize Mars. So his big goal is to colonize Mars. And in fact, his dream is to die on Mars. Not that he wants to die on Mars, but he's convinced and his dream is that I will live out the rest of my days on Mars. And, and the interviewer says, why? Why do you want to do that? And here's what he says. What's the point of being alive if you can't have something to look forward to? And I thought, yeah, I like that. That's good we're like the same person. <laughs> and, then he th- and then he says this though, and this is kind of where we depart a little bit. Then he says this, because the thought of the human species being a one planet species makes me incredibly depressed. And I thought, yeah, that, that's, we're not, we're not the same person. That doesn't really bother me. So he's thinking about, I, I need a future. I need a vision. I need something to go to. I need a goal in my life. And I can't live with fulfillment if this is the only planet that we live on. Okay. He's talking about hope. Whatever yours is, right? He's talking about that, maybe not your goal. But he's talking about hope. He's talking about the promise of a better future. He's talking about. The courage to go on and to fix your eyes on a future that is yet to be held, and saying, "I am going to keep going because of that." That's what he's talking about, and that's something that we can identify with. And what can guarantee a future for us? I mean, what what alone? What a, I mean, great, for, great. If if he accomplishes that, awesome. But then what? You know. What can guarantee it and, and what happens when there's failure? No one and nothing, but the promise of Christ is, is the hope of glory. Moses proved to be insufficient. He died with a generation. All the greats of the Bible proved to be not enough. All the achievements and accomplishments of our life, as amazing as they may be, are never enough. And defi- de- despite what, what coffee mugs at TJ Maxx say, we are not enough. <laughs> they got a lot of those. You are enough. We are not enough. And it's good that, that it's okay that we're not enough because that's not our hope and that's not our future. And, and the courage that we need to go on is not found in ourselves that we are enough. The courage is in the hope of the glory of Christ. Because Jesus is enough. The audience in this passage, they're facing persecution. They're facing loneliness. They're facing difficulty in life. uh, They're facing uh, many challenges to their faith. And the writer of Hebrews says to them, the remedy to your fear, the remedy to hopelessness, the remedy to temptation to fall into a life of sin and rebellion is found in the bold and open profession of the truth in which you hope. This is the remedy The courage that we have to go on is found in the hope of Christ and professing this always, having it before us always. Having confidence, not in ourselves but in Christ. Our hope's not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in our character or our accomplishments. Our hope is in Jesus. We don't have to boast in what we bring to God because Christ is enough. We boast in him. And this is what the Hebrews tells us. How do we keep going? How can we be sure of our salvation? How can we have confidence in this life? How can we have courage to keep moving on, to stand firm in the midst of trouble? Don't boast in what you bring. Boast in what God has done for you. Boast in the glory of Christ, which is certain, which is affirmed in the resurrection of Jesus, the glory of God, risen from the dead, ascended on high, ministers to us today, Uh, uh, He abides in us through faith. He is with us now. And so if if you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts. Don't silence him. Listen to him. Believe in him. Follow him. Obey him. Rest in him and worship him. Consider him in all that you do. And he will never forsake you.